What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we saw the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai, and as we noted, they're going to spend a whole year there. It's taken three months for them to get to from Egypt to Mount Sinai, and now they're going to stop and they're going to pause. And this is a time that God really devotes a lot of Scripture to. We have 58 chapters in this one-year span of time. And so all the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Deuteronomy are all going to be focused on this year span of time. And there's three really important events that take place during this year. The first event is that God comes down from Mount Sinai. He speaks to Moses. He speaks to the nation of Israel. Uh, and that's what we looked at in chapter 19 last week. And I'll give you a little reminder because it's important as we come into chapter 20. And God tells Moses, hey, you, you got to prepare the people. In three days, I'm going to come, but there's going to be some preparation that's going to be needed before I arrive. And so first, you need to consecrate them. You need to make sure that they clean themselves, clean their clothes, get themselves right for my arrival. Second, you need to put a boundary around the base of the mountain that no one should pass. And if anyone does pass, let them know they're going to be killed for doing it. And third, they cannot come near the mountain until I call them with a trumpet blast from heaven. And so three days go by, and now God descends upon Mount Sinai. There's this cloud with thunder and lightning, and this loud trumpet starts to sound, and it's getting louder and louder, and the nation of Israel start going to this mountain at the base of it, and then they see the whole mountain consumed in fire. There's fire, there's smoke, then the earth starts quaking And they're starting to fear for good reason. And then finally, Moses speaks. And then God audibly speaks back to the nation. And he calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. And right when Moses gets there, God says, go back down. And once again, warn the people, do not cross the barrier or you're all going to, well, whoever does is going to be killed. And he says, you and Aaron are the only ones to come back up. And so that's how we end chapter 19, but we notice that there's, you know, a big difference between Mount Sinai, the mountain that the Old Testament, you know, saints had to go to versus Mount Zion, which is where we go to in our relationship with Jesus, because they had this barrier, they had all these restrictions, there was, there was so much uh, lack of freedom in their connection with God versus what we have with Jesus, where we can come to Him at any time because we've been forgiven at the cross. And so this first event, God comes down on Mount Sinai, and now we come to the event that when most people hear Mount Sinai, they think, oh, the giving of the law, uh, which is a very, very important part of Israel's history. It's a very important part uh, for us as believers, and we're going to start looking at that tonight. 
where it starts in chapter 20 with probably the most commonly thought of thing when someone mentions the law. There's many laws in the Old Testament, but the ones that most people think of are the Ten Commandments. And that's what chapter 20 deals with, which we'll look at tonight. And the third important event after the giving of the law is that God has the Israelites build the tabernacle, and there's this whole sacrificial system that he establishes, and we'll be looking at that afterwards. And so tonight, we're going to start this study focusing on the law, focusing on what God gives, and some different things about it. Uh, and so, you know, I'm heard, I'm sure that most of you have heard, uh, read through, uh, perhaps some of you have even memorized the Ten Commandments. Some might actually even be able to do them all in order. Uh, but I hope that as we go through this, it's not just something that, oh yeah, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. I don't just want, you know, a, a memory of what they are. I hope we get a deeper grasp of what they mean for the purpose of how should we apply them to our lives. Now, before God gives this command, and we saw this last week as well, he, he reveals a bit about who he is, and right again, before he shares these Ten Commandments, once again, he wants to remind the Israelites about who he is before he gives them the law that he's asking them to obey. So let's see here, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So the first thing that God wants to declare about himself, before I get into the law, before I tell you what I want you to do, how I want you to live, what I want you to obey, you need to remember something about who I am. He says, I am the Lord your God. Now, this word Lord is very important. It would have brought back uh, some familiarity with this, uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, we actually don't know how to pronounce this word in Hebrew because the, the Jews looked at this word for God and they thought, you know what, it's such an important word, we're not even worthy to write the whole word out. So they only wrote the consonants Y-H-W-H. Uh, most people believe it's probably pronounced Yahweh, but uh, we don't know because we don't know what the vowels are because they say, you know, this is so important that we're not even worthy to write the whole thing, so we're just going to write down the consonants. And this is a very significant word because it's the one that they would relate all the way back to the first person that God called. If you remember in Genesis, we have Abraham, we got Isaac, we got Jacob. This is the name that God used with them. This is the name that they were familiar with, the one that they passed on and, and spoke to, to their children and their children's children all the way down now to the Israelites that are there at Mount Sinai. But also remember back at the burning bush. This is how God refers to himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 15 through 17 says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord, this word most likely is pronounced Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, once again, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. 
So, so here we have, you know, God reminding, hey, hey, Moses, I, when they say, who sent you? Give them this name. Tell them about me. You know, the God who spoke to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You know, this is something that is so important. The God who's going to deliver you and he's going to take you to the promised land. And so this is something that God wants them to remember before he gives them this Ten Commandments to obey. Remember who I am. Remember who I was to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Remember what I've just done for you. And remember what I've promised to do for you in the future and taking you to the promised land. And so first God declares something about who he is to remind them of these important truths. But now he's going to remind them of something that he's just done. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay, you remember who I am, but also remember what I've just done for you. All that I've done, all that I've done to deliver you from Egypt to now, the way that I brought the ten plagues, the way that I destroyed the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, the way that I've provided for you and brought you to this place at this moment, I want you to remember how I have taken care of you. And I think this is so important for them. You know, they're about to get, you know, some significant commands that are going to be very difficult that God's saying, this is the way I want you to live. This is what I want you to obey. But before I even throw that out there, I want you to know who I am, and I want you to be reminded of what I've done for you, because this is really the foundation for now the giving of these commandments, because God wants the Israelites to approach them with an understanding who he is, an understanding that he loves them, an understanding of what he's done for them, which ultimately gives them their understanding that he has the right to give them loss. He has the right to tell them how to live, and he has the right to expect obedience from them. It isn't just any person throwing out, hey, or this is the way you should live. No, look who I am. Look what I've done. And remember that as I give this to you, because I am the only one truly able, the only one truly deserving of giving you the law and asking for you to show obedience to it. Now, really, this is something important for us as well, because the Ten Commandments are not just for the Israelites. They're for anybody who chooses to follow God. And he really establishes that same kind of starting principle with us. Before you start to try to do things for God, you need to know who he is and what he's done for you. We see that throughout Scripture. Whenever you start to try to do things for God before knowing who he is and what he's done, it ends poorly. You first have to know him, what he's done, why you should do these things because of who he is, because of what he's done for you, and because he now deserves our obedience. So before we look at these commandments, I want to note some important things about them. Um, these are given in order to bless. They're given in order to benefit. They're not given to rob us of our fun. They're not given to rob us of our pleasure and our joy. God knew because he created us what's the best way for us to live. And so he declares it. This is the way you should do it. I know what will be best for you, and I'm going to establish these commandments for your benefit. But sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we struggle believing that what God has established, the laws that he has given to us, are really best for us, are really for our benefit, not to try to you know, hinder us in some way or, or you know, take away some of our joy or pleasure. I remember back before my brother and I were teenagers, you know, we lived in a place where there was this big hill behind us, had all these hiking trails, and, you know, we'd love to go explore. Uh, and at the top of the hill, they had these several boulders, uh, and my dad was up there, and, you know, one day he comes down, and he says, Matthew, Nathan, I don't want you ever on those boulders. 
Uh, and we're like, why? And he says, well, you know, there's a lot of rattlesnakes around here. It's really hot up there. This is a place where they're going to love to, you know, come together. And so I don't want you guys up there. It's not a safe place. And so, you know, we traveled by there over and over again as we did our exploring. We never saw one snake. And we just thought, you know what? Dad just doesn't want us running on the boulders. He thinks we're going to fall and hurt ourselves. He thinks we're little babies. You know, there's no snakes up here. And so we watched Return of the Jedi. My brother and I grabbed some sticks and we thought, you know, we're going to have an epic, you know, fighting scene here. You know, they were going to pretend they're lightsabers. And we start jumping from boulder to boulder, you know, fighting and we're getting tired. And so we lay down on these boulders to relax for a while. It's hot out. And all of a sudden we start hearing this you know, and we look down and we see not one, not two, not three, this bunch of rattlesnakes are all around. And we're starting to freak out. Like, how are we going to get down off these boulders at the top of the hill? At the bottom is our, you know, house. And so we finally just decide, all right, we're just going to run and jump as far as we can from the boulder over where these snakes are. And hopefully we don't get bit and just run down the hill. And it's one of those like things where it just happened so fast where we finally got to the bottom of the hill. We just couldn't believe that we didn't get bitten and we didn't fall. Uh, but we did make it. I remember the first words out of my brother's mouth was like, well, I guess dad wasn't lying. Uh, you know, because the whole time we thought, there's no snakes. There's no danger. He's just trying to spoil our fun. But the reality was, no, he knew that this is not a safe thing for you. Steer clear of it. And I think oftentimes, you know, when it comes to God and his commandments, we sometimes assume the worst. Oh, Lord, he's trying to, he just telling me that that's not really true. You know, that's really not for my benefit. You know, he's just trying to spoil my front. I'm just going to do that anyway. And, and we don't listen because we don't believe that he actually is doing this because he knows what's best for us. And so that's one thing I think is important to realize is he's our loving father looking out what's for what's best for us, the best possible way for us to live is the way that he has established and we need to trust that. And our main response to each one of these commands should be one of obedience. That's what God has called us to do, that's what he commands of us, but also, you know, not just to obey just because, well, God tells me, which is obviously important. We want to do it because God tells us. But I think as we come to obedience, we need to also obey because it's like, I believe it's what's best. Because if all we think is, I'm just going to do it because God tells me, even though I don't think it's what's best, typically that doesn't last very long. We have to come to the recognition that, yes, he tells me, and I want to do it because he tells me, but also I believe he tells me because he does what's best. And in obeying this, it is what is best for me. But, you know, whenever it comes to obedience and the Ten Commandments, I think it's always important to throw out, because I would say among the world, and even a lot in the Christian world, one of the biggest things that is misunderstood when you associate obedience and the Ten Commandments or obedience in the law is this mindset that I obey these commandments in order to be forgiven, saved, have a relationship with God, that that's what it's based on. My obedience or lack thereof is going to determine whether or not God loves me, whether or not I'm saved, whether or not I have a relationship with him. And so as we talk about the Ten Commandments, I want to recognize and make sure we're all on the same page. Obeying or disobeying the Ten Commandments has no bearing whatsoever on our salvation. We're not saved by our obedience to the Ten Commandments. We're not you know, unsaved by our lack of obedience. We are saved because Jesus fully obeyed. Uh, and we put our trust and faith in that. But now that we are believers, and we are asking a very important question, how does the God who loves me and gave his life for me want me to live? Well, now we come to the Ten Commandments with the recognition of this is the standard that God has. 
I'm probably never going to you know, meet each one of these, but I'm now seeking to live them out because I want to do what the God of the Bible asked me to do. David Guzik wrote this, The Ten Commandments were never given with the thought that one might earn heaven by obeying them all perfectly or adequately. The covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai was much bigger than the law, though it was its first and perhaps most dramatic aspect. Another aspect of the covenant was sacrifice, which was given because both God and Israel knew it was impossible for them to keep the law perfectly, and they must depend on the sacrifice of an innocent victim as a substitute for the guilty lawbreaker. In this sense, the Ten Commandments were like a mirror that showed Israel their need for sacrifice. And this is something that's great that we're going to see as we go through Exodus, because sometimes we just think, well, the law was what it was all based on. No, the covenant was more than the law. And we're going to see as we get to the tabernacle, this whole sacrificial system. Well, what's all that about? Well, it's partly because, hey, you can't keep the law. You're a bunch of breakers of the law, and so we need sacrifices to atone for all these law-breaking things that you're doing. And so God right away establishes a reality that you actually can't do what this is saying to point you to your need for the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And so as we seek to obey these Ten Commandments as believers, first, hey, God tells us it, we want to do it. But second, it's because it's best for us, but it's not something that saves us. Now, the Ten Commandments, really, if you look at them, are broken down into two different relationships. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God, and the next six deal with our relationship with other people. And Jesus kind of simplifies it even more. He says, really, there's two main commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And really, if you take those two, it's the simplification of the first four, if you're doing those four, that means you're showing that you love God. And if you're doing the second six, then it shows that you're loving your neighbor as yourself. But tonight we're going to look at the first four, this relationship that we have with God, the commandments that are in connection with that relationship. If we truly are loving God, we'll be doing these commandments. And so the first commandment that God gives, one of the most important ones of all in this whole list you shall have no other gods before me. If you kind of avoid this commandment, everything else falls apart. You know, this is such a vital one. You can't have any other gods before God. The Hebrew word here translated before means to come into the presence of something, to come before the face of someone. So notice this, that this word translated before is not used in the sense that we often think of when we think of before as in order of priority. Like I did this before I did those things because this was more important to me. Instead, it's speaking of bringing another God into God's presence or to his face. Now, I mention this because, you know, sometimes people have come to this and say, oh, well, all I have to do is make sure that God is the most uh, important, that he's the highest priority, and I can have other gods as long as it's not before him. So it's okay if I have other gods. It's okay if I worship and, and indulge in these things as long as it's not before God. If God's the priority, then it's okay to indulge in these other things. No, that's not what this is saying at all. It's saying, don't bring any god into my presence. There's no excuse for having any other god besides me. So he's not saying just like before, he's saying none at all. 
I'm the only one. I want to be the only God in your life. Just like God wants to, us to give us, give him our lives completely, he wants to be the God that we serve completely, not with any other gods competing for that. Another important word here to understand is this word gods, because these are the things that we shouldn't have in our lives. Oftentimes when we think of gods, maybe we think of Buddha statues, or we think of, you know, some other kind of Hindu statues, or just some idol that, you know, uh, people erect and bow down and worship, and, you know, that would definitely fit uh, in the category of gods, but, but that's not all that it is. Because sometimes we think, well, I don't worship other gods because, you know, I don't have some little idol that I pray to or little idol that I bow down to or little idol that I do whatever to. But, you know, we need to realize that even when you look at these cultures that worship a Buddha or actually we're going to see with the nation of Israel, Baal, Ashtoreth, you know, those are very common gods that they would worship. It was really more of what these gods did for them that they were worshiping more so than the statue itself. You know, it was what the gods they thought could provide for them that caused them to worship these gods. And I think that's interesting. Ashereth was a female god. She was the goddess of sex, romance, fertility. Lots of people worshipped her. Why? Because they wanted those things. And so it wasn't so much that, oh, I, I just want to bow down to this weird-looking woman carved out of you know stone or wood. No, I, I, I want to worship her because I believe that she is going to benefit me in this area of lust that I have, or I want this romantic relationship, or I want children. Another one very common was Baal. He really was the god of weather, but in that kind of culture where all your wealth is really in agriculture and growth of uh, you know food, the weather's bad. You know you don't have to you know, can't whip out a hose and water your you know plants. If there's no rain, everything dies. You got nothing. So he was really the god that they worshipped for financial success, for riches, because it was all down to him, according to them. The, that they would have that. And so we look back and we think, oh man, those, those idol worshipers of old, how primitive they were. But the reality is, how many people today are worshiping sex and romance? How many people today are worshiping finances and success and riches? I mean, we're full of people with the same thing. It might not be the statue, but ultimately the God is still there. What they're worshiping and living for is still there. John Calvin wrote this, Human nature is like an idle factory that operates constantly. We constantly deal with the temptation to set all kinds of things before or competing with God and His preeminent place in our life. And this is our problem. You know, we have a world where, you know, we, we are constantly having things placed before us with this temptation to elevate that to the place of, hey, this is what I should worship and then remove God from the throne of our life. And so we need to be very careful as believers that we worship God and God alone. And I have to emphasize the God alone part because I think, you know, just like that word before, we've bought into this idea that I can worship God and worship something else and it's okay. I kind of just add something else. You know, as long as I'm worshiping God, isn't that enough? Can I just worship God and money? Can I just worship God and relationships? Can I just worship God and power? Can I worship God and just add the other thing that I want to worship as well? Is there really a problem with that? As long as I'm, I'm still worshiping God, there shouldn't be an issue, right? 
Well, Jesus spoke about that in Matthew 6.24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Really, the God of material possessions. So Jesus makes very clear, you can't serve God and some other God, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's pleasure, at the same time. He says you're going to love one and hate the other. And here's the problem. The one that you start to hate is the true God. The one that you start to love is the one that you're trying to, oh, I'll just bring this into it. You know, surely, you know, this pursuit of money is not going to overtake my relationship with God. Oh, yes, it will. Surely this pursuit of, of sexual pleasure or this pursuit of power or whatever it is that I'm trying to worship uh, alongside with God, surely it's not going to overtake my worship of God. Jesus says that's exactly what's going to happen. You can only have one. When you try to have more than one, your relationship and worship of God is the one that gets destroyed. So we need to examine our lives. We need to make sure, hey, that there's only one God that I'm worshiping. And if you look at your life and you say, no, I want to be honest with myself. Yeah, there are other pursuits. There are other things that I'm worshiping, other things that I'm trying to have in my relationship and worship of God on the side. We need to get rid of those things because those things are just going to destroy the relationship that we have with God. And we need to do it because we know God knows what's best. He's telling us this because he knows, hey, if we'll give him everything, if we'll live completely for him, that's the best life for us. All these other pursuits these other gods that we think, oh, this is going to be such a benefit for me if I kind of add this to my life. God say, no, 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 just live for me and that'll be the best thing for you. So the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. Really the most important command in our relationship with God because once we leave that, everything else is going to be problematic and fall apart. The second command, verses 4 through 6 you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments." So the second commandment is very similar to the first commandment, but it's a little different in the sense that it prohibits the making of an image or any created thing for the purpose of worship. That if you're trying to create something that you think is going to enhance your worship of God or, or that's going to help your worship of God, that is necessary for worship of God, God said, don't. Don't make any image of anything and worship that image. That is not what I want, because ultimately, it's just like placing another God. That image now becomes the God instead of the true God that you should be worshiping. So images of people, animals, fish, stars, planets, he kind of this whole list of, you know, anything on the sea, under the sea, on the earth. Don't, don't make any of those images and worshiping them. And it's interesting, you look through history and you see, you know, the different idols, almost all of them are connected with some kind of created thing from God. Sometimes it's a mixture of things, you know, you might have, you know, a head of a, a lion and a body of something else. But at the end of the day, it's taking, you know, animals, it's taking different creatures or the sun or something created. And God's saying, no, I don't want any of that to be something that you now use and worship. 
Now notice this commandment doesn't forbid the making of an image for artistic purposes, as long as you're not worshiping it. You know, people who draw pictures of what they might think Jesus' face looked like, you know, we don't know. But it's not like, oh, they're horrible, sinful, they're breaking the second commandment. They're only breaking the second commandment if they put it up in their room and they bow down and pray to it every night. I mean, if that image is what they're using to worship, it's a problem. I mean, I would even say the cross, which is like the most, you know, the biggest symbol of all that we use for Christianity. There's nothing wrong with wearing it on a necklace, nothing wrong with having it in your home. But if you're holding it and praying to it, if that's the, the thing that you're looking to and saying, oh, th- this is this is it, man, this is what really I need to, to connect with God, then, then you've missed it. Then that symbol has become something that you've made as an image that you're worshiping that you shouldn't be. Now, many of you have probably been in churches, you know, especially older churches that have within them images that are designed for people to pray to, to worship. You know, living in Europe, I went to a lot of beautiful, beautiful churches. But sadly, many of them were churches full of idolatry. You know, what they have, these statues they have of saints, of other things, were for the purpose of people to look to those things as opposed to God. Look to those things for worship. Look to those things for prayer. Uh, you know, I've been actually a couple times to Rome and then go into Vatican City. You get to go to St. Peter's Basilica. That's where the Pope presides. That's the, you know, the church that he ultimately, you know, teaches out of. And there's a picture here of it. It's a very impressive building. I mean, everything that you see, it's not like gold paint. It is actual gold. I mean, the, the, the value of this place is astronomical, but You can just even see in this picture, there's all these statues everywhere. The one to the far right there is a statue of Peter sitting down. And I found it very interesting. One of his foot, his right foot kind of sits over and people will come and they believe that if they can just touch that statue's foot, they'll kiss it, they'll rub it, and they'll pray to Peter. And oh, Peter, the first pope, their mindset is. And oh, he's the one that can just do so many things for us. The left foot, you can see all the toes, and it's it's a bronze statue. It's intricate. It's beautiful. The right foot is just completely smooth. Imagine how many people have had to rub it and kiss it to take a bronze statue that was all carved up, and it's now just smooth uh, because so many people have just come to that believing that, oh, if I can just touch this, oh, I'll get so close to God. You know, I was there at the year of Jubilee, and there was an older woman right before me, and we were, you know, the Pope said, you walk through these doors the year of Jubilee, all your sins are forgiven. And so she walks through, falls down, just weeping. I'm thinking, I just came through these doors last year, I came through them again this year. It does nothing for you, but sadly there was this mindset of like, oh, this is so important. Now, it's interesting that the Catholics did realize, hey, wait a second, what we're doing goes against the second commandment. And if you look in the Catholics' Bible, they actually remove the second commandment because you can't really get around the fact that they do this. So here you see a picture. This is the Ten Commandments of the Catholic Church versus you know what the Protestants would have. And they skip the second commandment altogether. So they go from first to third, but they still got to have ten. So how do they do it? Well, they take thou shalt not covet and they make it into two. You know, your neighbor's wife and, you know, something else. So, you know, they kind of make the tenth one into two so that they can remove the second one all together. Uh, and, you know, this is something where, you know, it's just because, hey, we want to have this imagery. We want to have these things that we create as what we worship. 
You know, but you don't just have to be religious. You don't just have to have a Catholic background or some other religious background in order to do this. We live in a culture where image maybe is worshipped now more than ever before with the rise of social media. I mean, you just think of the Instagram posts and everything. I mean, the thing that we're worshiping more than ever is ourselves. But I mean, the image is so vital, so important. We're constantly focused on it and, and really living for it, worshiping it. And so, you know, we have this issue very prevalent in our day to day. And Jesus kind of gives the rationale behind why the second commandment is, is established. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God's not physical, he's spiritual. And so trying to take like all these physical things and making some physical picture, some physical statue, thinking, well, this represents God. No, it doesn't. And so God said, no, like this was the one thing that separated the temple and the tabernacle from all the other temples that existed in the world. There was no statues. The Romans couldn't understand it as they were. The Greeks couldn't understand it. They had so many different statues of the different gods. It's like, what do you mean? You have a temple that worships a God and you have no you know, carved images of him? You know, what's going on? God says, yeah, because that's not what I want. You don't need that to focus or to help you. It really denies who I am because I am spirit and it denies how I want you to worship me. I want you to worship me in spirit and in truth. You know, in the Romans... Chapter 1, Paul reminds us of the futility of making carved images in our own likeness or the likeness of creation. Romans 1, 22 and 23, he says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And he goes on just to kind of talk about you know, the creation of these idols. But how foolish to take the glory of the incorruptible God and say, you know what? Here, let's carve this bird and let's bow down and worship that. Isaiah speaks of the foolishness of saying, you know what? I'm going to chop down this tree and I'm going to take a portion of this tree and I'm going to carve out an image of a lion. And I'm going to put that image of a lion in my house and I'm going to worship that lion. And for the rest of the tree, I'm going to chop it up into wood and I'm going to burn it in my fire. And I should realize this tree has no power. I chopped it down. Half of it was for fire. I carved this thing and I'm putting it in my house and I believe that it somehow has some power to do something for me and I worship it. It's the foolishness of thinking that that has anything, that that's a God that I should give any kind of worship, praise, honor to. And I like how Paul says it, professing to be wise, they became fools. When you take the glory of the incorruptible God and try to, you know, all right, we're, we're going to take that and we're going to just carve this and worship this or, you know, create this. No, it doesn't work. I think oftentimes people do this because they think, man, this is going to enhance my worship. It's going to enhance my relationship with God. If I have this thing that I can see, if I have this thing that I've created, oh, what that's going to do, it's going to enhance it. But the reality is, no, it doesn't enhance worship. It does the opposite. It hinders worship. It actually causes you to sin and break this commandment. God doesn't want us to pray to some image. He wants us to pray to him. He doesn't want us to trust in some image. He wants us to trust in him. Those things destroy our relationship with God. They do not help it. So God says, don't make these images to worship them. And then he gives us a good reason why. Verses 5 and 6. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, first reason I don't want you to do this, I don't want you to have any other gods before me, I don't want you to have any carved graven images. Why? I am a jealous God for you. The jealousy of God shows how much he loves his people. It's not a jealousy of the Israelites. It's a jealousy for the Israelites. It's like the jealousy that a husband or a wife have for their spouse. If they were to go off and be with some other person, you'd be jealous. It's a relationship between you and them, and you expect to have that just between you guys. And if that was to be abandoned and they were to go off and be with someone else, yeah, you would be rightfully jealous of that. So God's jealousy for the Israelites shows his love for them. I don't want you worshiping something other than me. I don't want you living for something other than me. I want us to have that worship and that relationship. And the same is true in our relationship with God. He's jealous for us. He loves us. He doesn't want us committing adultery on him with some other God. He doesn't want us leaving him for some other pursuit. But no, 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 I love you enough that I want all of you. Alan Redpath wrote this. God's jealousy is love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because he's selfish and wants all for himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty to him depends our very moral life. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. Now, God not only says, I'm a jealous God, but he also brings up another motivating reason. Well, why shouldn't I worship another God? Why shouldn't I create an image of another God and worship that? Well, because there's consequences to that. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, some people have come to this verse, and oftentimes they just come straight to it. They don't look at the context of it. They just go straight to verse 5, and they read this. God visits the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. What a horrible God. I mean, here's these people that are now being punished for the sins of their parents. Oh, is this what God does? And that's not what this is speaking about. This is not what God is saying, that I'm going to punish people for the sin of their parents. But notice the important words are of those who hate me. Because he says, if they love me, I'm not going to pour my wrath upon them. I'm going to pour my mercy upon them. So notice that the, the, the important reality that, yes, you know, if someone has a father that chooses to hate God and they follow in their father's footsteps and then the grandchild follows in their grandfather's footsteps and they all choose to hate God, guess what? The iniquity that the father and grandfather had is going to be passed down because the others have chosen to take God as well. They've chosen to do those things as well. But if they choose, I'm not going to be like dad or like grandpa. I'm not going to hate God. I'm going to love God. It stops with them because they've made the choice to love God and now God's mercy instead of his judgment is poured on us. And this shouldn't shock us. Those who hate God are going to hell for all eternity. Those who love God are going to be saved for all eternity. He brings judgment upon those who do that, and each person makes that choice. But I think in the context, what God is trying to help people see is the importance of the choice you make as parents has a drastic impact on others. 
and saying, hey, as you as fathers, if you choose to worship other gods, if you choose to worship you know, these carved graven images, the iniquity that's coming on you is also going to come on your children if they continue in your footsteps, which they most likely will. You look statistically, if you're raised in a Christian home, the likelihood of you becoming a Christian is far greater than someone who didn't get raised in a Christian home. Guess what? If you were raised in a home that believed in Islam, you know what the odds of you believing that? Much greater. You live in a home that believes in Hinduism. The reality is what your parents believe religiously has a huge impact on kids. That doesn't mean that God can't break through that. It doesn't mean that God can't save people out of that. He does it all the time. But the reality is what you choose as a parent will influence your children, especially the religious beliefs that you have. And we're going to see this through the nation of Israel. They're going to reject God and worship idols. And you're going to see that generation after generation is going to follow suit on that. And so there's lots of negative consequences. But we're also going to see there are going to be those who say, you know, we're going to break the cycle. We're going to love God. We're going to come back to God. We're going to worship God. And they don't suffer the iniquity of their parents. They have the mercy of God poured on them. So the reality is everyone's going to get a choice. It's not that God's saying, hey, you know what? Sorry, your father made this choice. And I know that you love me and want to worship me, but iniquity is coming. My wrath's coming. It's because of him and you're going to receive it. No, if, if you make a choice to worship and love God, then you're going to escape the wrath that would be coming if you hated him. But in this context, understanding, he's saying, hey, you better do this because the consequences for you and for the future generations are going to be part of this if you start worshiping other gods. Now let's look at the third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So here the third commandment. We have... No other gods, no images. And now God's specifically speaking about his name. Remember, he just told them, I am the Lord, your God. That name holds with it so much of my promise of who I am, of what I've done. And I want to make sure that you don't take my name in vain. Now, the Hebrew word translated vain means empty of speech, lying, falsehood, worthlessness. So we should never use God's name in this empty, false, or worthless way. Now, there are different ways in which someone could take the name of God in vain, but I just want to note two of the main ways that we see that in our culture, and also that we see that within people who believe in God. The first most common way that I would say that God's name is taken in vain is as profanity. People use God's name or Jesus Christ's name in a profane way. You watch movies and TV shows, and it's used just as a cuss word. That's how they speak those names. That's what they think with those names. That's what they're referring to with those names. And unfortunately, many Christians, because they hear it so often, maybe at work or they're watching movies or they're watching TV, and they just hear that over and over and over just thrown out there, in their own speech, they're now numb to it, and they start to do it. You know, they usually start to swear in other ways as well, but, you know, they're, they're taking the name of the Lord in vain and just basically using it. I mean, they're angry, using it as some, you know, profane curse word. And this is something that we should never 
do. It shouldn't be something flippantly used. It shouldn't be used with profanity. It shouldn't be used as blasphemy. It only should be used in a very respectful way. So that's the first way, just kind of how we speak that name. You know, how are we using it? We could use it in vain in this empty, worthless way, or we could do it with respect. The second main way that we use God's name in vain in an empty, false, or worthless way is when we connect his name to something that goes completely against who he is. And this is something I think more Christians are guilty of. When we connect the name of God to something that goes against who he is, what he would do, his nature, his character, what is clearly revealed in Scripture about who he is, and we say, oh, this is of God. I mean, you look through church history, and it's just full of instances where people said, this is of God, which is clearly not of God. And you look at, like, the Crusades, for example. Oh, this was of God. No, it wasn't. You, know, you, you can look clearly at the nature and character of God and who he is and recognize, you no, know, you can have a whole group of people that can claim, oh, God did this. God's leading this and realize, no, that's not true. But you also have that in individuals. You know, I've had people come to me and tell me, you know what? Hey, God has told me, God has given me permission to leave my spouse and be with this other person. Why? Because he wants me to be happy. God didn't tell you that. Oh, no, he did. He gave me permission to do this. No, he didn't. Trust me. That's not what he would say. That's not what he did. He didn't say, I just want you to be happy and leave. And, you know, this is something that, you know, people want to ultimately put God in the place and say, well, well, he did it, so I'm not responsible. Well, God said that I can indulge in this. God said that I can, you know, do this. No. If we're kind of associating things with God that are sinful or associating things with God that go against who he is, that is taking his name and associating with things that is false. And that's taking his name in vain. We got to be very careful with that. I, I struggle with listening to some pastors who take the name of God and connect it with things that are just so unbiblical. But then people think, well, if God's name's associated with it, surely it's true and right. No, it's not true. Study your Bible so you can see that it's not true. But sadly, this is a way in which we also can take the name of God in vain to falsely connect God with something that is not a part of who He is of what he declares in his word, of his nature, and we have to be careful not to do that. But you know, as I mentioned when we start, Jesus kind of says, hey, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you do that, you're gonna, in that relationship with God, you'll, you'll keep these commandments. And I want you to think about that. If you really love someone, how do you speak about them and using their name? I mean, this would be something that you wouldn't take their name in vain. I mean, you love someone, you wouldn't be using their name as profanity. You know, that, that wouldn't show your love. That would show the exact opposite. I don't love you at all, and that's why I use your name in this way. You know, if you love someone, you wouldn't be associating them with something that's not true about them. You wouldn't be connecting their name with something false, with something that goes against who they are. And so you can kind of see how you use the name of God. It reveals your relationship. It reveals where it's at. You know, when I hear Christians speak of God in a certain way, I just like, that's telling to where you are in your relationship with the Lord. Because you know what? You wouldn't be speaking of him that way if you had a really solid relationship and knew him the way that he declares himself in his word. And so, another challenge. But notice God says, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. God takes his name very seriously. And he said, hey, you know what? If you're going to do this, I am going to deal with that. 
Just because the culture doesn't take God's name serious, doesn't take Jesus Christ's name serious, hey, we as believers, we should take it serious because God takes it serious and we want to make sure we do not associate his name with things that aren't true of him and that we don't speak his name in a vain, disrespectful way. Well, the fourth commandment and the final one that we'll look at tonight, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your sons, nor your daughters, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger within who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So the fourth commandment, which is focused on our relationship with God, is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now it's interesting, this word, Hebrew word Sabbath, it comes from a root word that ultimately means a day of rest. And so when God is saying, remember the Sabbath, it's all about rest. Remember the day of rest and keep it holy. Well, in verses 9 and 10, God gives them a how. Well, how are we supposed to remember this day of rest? Well, six days, you should labor and do all your work. So God's not saying be lazy. He's saying, hey, for six days, I want you to do everything that you need to do. Labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day. The Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. So how do we do it? Well, God says, hey, work six days and make sure every week you take a day of rest, a day to stop your labor, a day to stop your work. Now, this was a huge blessing. You look at all these commandments and realizing, you know what, God is giving them to us for our benefit. But this one should be one of the most obvious at this point in time for the nation of Israel to recognize, hey, this is nice. What did they just come out of? Slavery. Guess what? Slaves don't get a day off. They've been working every single day their whole life up to this point in time. And now God says, guess what, guys? Once a week, you get a day of rest. Now, it's interesting what he says. He says it for everyone, and let's include pretty much everything living in Israel. You, your son, your daughter, your male and female servants, your cattle, and the stranger within your house. None of you should be working. You should all be resting. Now, notice everyone in Israel is included, even the animals. Now, this is something that would go so against the way in which the thinking of the day and the culture of the surrounding nations. To take a day of rest was for a select few, typically men, free men, to more specifically, not slaves. They would have the freedom to take a day off, take a day a week off, that wouldn't be unheard of, but for a slave, <laughs> they never get time off. Women, nope. Animals, nope. Visitors, maybe. But God's saying, hey, everybody who's in the nation once a week, I want you to give them this day of rest. 
And so here God is declaring the essential humanity and dignity of women, of slaves, of strangers, of the people in those societies that did not get dignity, did not get the rights that others got. God's saying everybody's getting this right. Everybody should be given the freedom and rights to a day of rest, just like an Israeli man would get. Now in verses 9 and 10, we see the how. Verse 11 is the why. Well, why should we do this? Well, God tells them, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You know, God established this pattern at creation. Six days it took him to create everything. What did he do on the seventh day? He rested. And this was establishing a pattern that he was going to give to his people, and we see him giving it to them now. Just like I worked six days and I rested, I want you to do the same. You work six days, and everybody, even the animals, take a day of rest. But God says, keep it holy. And here's where, unfortunately, things went awry with the nation of Israel. Man, they probably at first were like, this is so awesome. We're slaves. We get a day once a week to rest. We never thought this day would come. Wonderful. But then they got this mindset of keep it holy, and they started to take what was used to give them a blessing and ultimately made it into a curse. They really missed the whole point. They started getting very legalistic as to what they could or couldn't do. Oh, we got to keep it holy, and so let's make sure we, we understand exactly what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath so that you do not break it. For example, ancient rabbis, years after the giving of this, had come up with their own mindset of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. They would say a man could not carry something in his right hand or his left hand across his chest or over his shoulders. How typically it would normally carry something, you know, where you would do that. No, you can't do that. You do that, you're breaking the Sabbath. But you can carry something on the back of your hand, on your foot, your elbow, your ear, the hem of your shirt, or your sandal. If you do that, it's okay. It's kind of get the absurdity of it. Like, okay, if I'm carrying it this way, I'm breaking the Sabbath. This way, no. You know, uh, I can not carry it over my shoulders, but elbow or foot, I'm good. You know, they just start coming up with this nonsense. Like, this is really, you know, all this legalistic stuff. Another ancient rabbi taught on the Sabbath, Israelites were forbidden to tie a knot, except a woman. She could tie a knot in her girdle. We're not going to forbid them. So if a bucket of water had to be raised out of a well and there was no rope already tied to it, sorry, can't tie a rope to it, but go get your wife. She can tie her girdle to it and you can raise it up. No problem. It's just kind of, there's so many of these laws and you kind of just see the, the absurdity of it. And you know, the biggest thing that Jesus when speaking with the Pharisees and their back and forth, one of the big things that he came against them was on their idea and legalistic bunch of do's and don'ts that they had added to God's law specifically on this idea of the Sabbath. And Jesus says something very important to them. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God gave this to you to bless you. It wasn't for you to try to do all this stuff in order to bless God. That wasn't the purpose. He's like, here's a day of rest. Take advantage of it. You've made it into this horrible thing where all this legalistic do's and don'ts and you've missed the point. Nobody's resting on this day. You've missed it. You've destroyed what God ultimately sought to do for you. And, you know, right now, I'm sure the Israelites are receiving the blessing. Unfortunately, they're going to take the blessing and turn it into a burden, which we so often do with things that God gives to us. But, uh, you know, 
This was something that not only was a physically restful day, we also see them established for them. It was Saturday. Typically, as a Christian church, we have taken it to Sunday. But Saturday, they'd get together in their synagogue. So not only was it a day of rest physically, but it was a day of fulfilling spiritual time of prayer in the Word together. And so those two are now associated together where the day of rest is a day where we devote more to our growth in our relationship with God. We're working, working, doing all this stuff for six days. We're going to physically rest. We're going to emphasize our spiritual growth on this Sabbath day of rest. And so those are the first four commandments. They all really focus on our relationship with God. Obviously, the first three are quite obvious, but the fourth one, because of its connection to the time, even with us. Sunday, we take that time to gather as a body. But first, most important, you shall have no other gods before me. Second, very similar, don't make for yourself a carved image or anything to worship. Third, don't take God's name in vain. Don't speak of it in some worthless, empty way with profanity or connect it with something that's false about God. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Next week, we'll look at the relationship that we have with one another and laws that God establishes with that. But what are your thoughts on just these first four commandments and the challenges that God gives to us in our relationship with Him?